Welcome to Shouts of Grace Radio, hosted by Pastor Steve Pearson of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. At Shouts of Grace Radio, it's our purpose to encourage you to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. Today, we're taking a break from our regular format to listen in on a Sunday sermon given by Pastor Steve at Redemption Hill Church. Now, get your Bible ready and follow along. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, January 1st, this last year, marked 30 years that the Lord has walked with me. And I do term it that way because he has, in fact, walked with me. Uh, If you've been a believer for any length of time, you can agree with that, that God has walked with you. Because there have been times when I haven't been super faithful in walking with him. Um, There are times when, in fact, um, you know, I've allowed thoughts to come into my head that have ruled my life and my actions as many of you. But God has never stopped walking with me, and he's always found a way to turn me around to where I ultimately end up, you know, having uh, or doing things his way. In 30 years, I can tell you this, I have underestimated two things. I have underestimated the power of my own flesh, and I have underestimated the grace and mercy of God. I've underestimated the power of my own flesh, meaning when I, like many of you, first gave my life to the Lord, I thought I could really make a commitment to God. And based on my commitment to do what he wants me to do, I would be successful. I would be able to not do certain things or or not think certain things. And what I found is much like what the Apostle Paul found. When the Apostle Paul was talking in the book of Galatians, he said, you know, I, speaking about the law, I thought that the law was supposed to give me life, meaning that if I just kept it, that I would be alive, that I would have life and I would be okay. And then he said this, but it deceived me and taken advantage of me when the law came, it killed me. Meaning, when I realized what it was, I realized I'm dead. I can't do this. I can't keep its conduct. I can't keep its commands. And he said, and sin became utterly sinful. It's not that sin wasn't sinful before. It's that when it was defined, it became utterly sinful. As a believer, early on, I thought, man, a Christian's a person who just do what's right and be good and don't sin. And the more you don't sin and the better you are, the gooder you are. <laughs> and if you do that enough, then you'll be a really good, stellar Christian. And what I found out is though that might be a noble goal, I realized that the older I got and the more I walked with Jesus, that my flesh was much more powerful than I thought. That every time I tried to tame it, every time I tried to tell it no, every time I put parameters around it and guidelines around it, it never listened. It just did what it wanted to do. And so now, 30 years of walking with Jesus, I've realized there's no negotiating with it. You can't 
put it in a cage. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. It can be subdued. You can have victory over it, but not in the way that you think or you thought when you were younger. And so what's happened consequently is when I was three years old in the Lord and then five years old in the Lord and then 10 years old in the Lord and 20, 25 and 30, I realized that as I walked with God, in one way I became more sinful. Now, was I practically becoming more sinful or was God opening my eyes to what was always there? And I underestimated its strength. I didn't understand how I could make a commitment at a particular moment on a Monday. And then three hours later, I'd be breaking that commitment. Like, what is wrong with me? And how come everybody else in the church has it all together? They figured it out. But I'll tell you something else I underestimated. I underestimated the depths of God's grace and his mercy. And that through 30 years, this God stayed with me and walked with me and gave me mercy and gave me grace. And I suppose that this will be the case all the way until the day that I leave this life and go to be with Christ, as will it be for you. Because the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life, I'm the chiefest of all sinners. Something happened in this religious man that made him realize what all of you and I are finding out right now. That the older you get, the more you realize how weak you are, the more God's grace becomes sufficient for your life to carry you through, and he gets all the glory. And the beautiful thing is when you leave this place, the Bible says he will present you spotless and blameless, which is against everything that you know. That's how wonderful he is. You guys, in my years of experience as a Christian, I have wondered and others have wondered as well, how do I live a faithful and God-honoring life? Because you want that, right? I mean, there's nobody here that's, you know, raising your hand saying, reprobate here, I just want to live a reprobate life, you know? You, you all want to live a godly life. And people have asked, how, how do I, I be faithful? How, how do I come to the end of my life and hear those glorious six words, well done, good and faithful servant, as opposed to the other six words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. How do I get to the end? How do I hear those words, right? Some might phrase the question this way. What is the secret to being a faithful Christian? And the reason that people term it that way as a secret is because in their, in their eyes, the reality of being faithful often eludes them. And since I can't seem to get it right, it must be a secret. There must be something hidden that I'm not seeing that others do see that makes them successful. Well, let me just say this. There is no secret. There's nothing secret. God has given full disclosure of what it will take on our part if we want to hear the words good and faithful servant at the end. Full disclosure. And this morning, he's going to make it very simple. In fact, he's going to give us three simple things. Three, that's it. That will not only apply to a person's conversion, but I believe it will apply throughout every person's life if you want to see God move powerfully. Now, if you don't, 
and you don't want a you know, powerful life and you want a mediocre life and you want to you know, roll the dice to wonder if you know, maybe you get to the end and there's a few words that Jesus didn't record that he might say like, um, okay job, you know, slothful, sometimes obedient servant, I don't know, you know. But if you want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, there are no secrets. He gives you full disclosure. Last week, we're going through Mark. Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi in the most darkest and wickedest place there is um, to the known world. Uh, this is where the gates of hell were. This is where they worshiped every foul deity in every foul way you possibly can't could. No Jew belonged there. They wouldn't go there. It was a Gentile city. It was a place where there was prostitution and the foul things that were done in the name of worship sexually, I mentioned I couldn't even tell you in church. It was gross. And Jesus takes his disciples to that place and he asks them, who do men say that I am? And then he makes it more specific. Who do you say that I am? And we saw that that was the most important question that any person could ask because it will have everything to do with how you conduct your life. And Peter stood up and he said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but your father who is in heaven has revealed. You just got a special revelation from God. And let me tell you this, Peter, upon this rock, upon me, myself, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell aren't gonna prevail against it. He let every Christian from that moment forward know that gates which lock people into darkness and, and desolation would not prevail against any Christian who would push up against to release people. Now, he's not guaranteeing you every single time you do that, you're going to see the victory you want. He's saying nothing can stop the spirit-filled believer. Nothing. Not even hell itself. This morning, I want to continue in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If any one of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel and myself will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Oh, Peter, man, man, oh, man. What a, what a day you had, you know, from glory and triumph to the bottom of the gutter, right? Who do men say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Peter, God spoke to you. <laughs> he revealed this to you. At which point, Peter 
must have in some way probably stuck out his big fisherman's chest a little bit. He was like, what's up? Other 11, Peter here, first Pope right here, you know, just kidding. (laughs) He probably thought a little more of himself thinking, man, I nailed that one, didn't I? What do you think about that, Johnny? (laughs) I would have. (laughs) And then Jesus says to the 12, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And Peter says, hey, Lord, Lord, come over here. That ain't ever going to happen. Ever is it going to happen. And the response of Jesus is, get behind me, Satan, for you are tending to the things of man, not of God. Man, from God has spoken to you to you are a hindrance, Satan, from the heights, yeah, to nothing. And man, oh man, you guys, which of us has not experienced that letdown before, right? where we've really experienced the Lord. And we thought, man, we really got this. We've nailed this to the lowest point in our walk. Thinking, man, I don't have anything. You're doing good one minute, and you turn around and your goodness betrays you. And you're stuck with reality. Who can't relate with that, you guys? Now, this is where Jesus begins to openly reveal his plans to his disciples. He tells them in Mark 8, 31 that he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, and he's ultimately going to be killed, but he is going to rise three days later. After Peter rejects this and Jesus rebukes him is where Jesus gives us three simple things. Man, they are simple, but they are deeply profound. That if we do them, that if we concentrate our life around them, that good is going to come in this life and the beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, are going to be heard in your ears on the day you pass from this life to the next. Number one, he says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. In 1 Kings chapter one, there's a story of King David and he's at the end of his life. And he's beat down, he's, you know, barely hanging on, he's barely cognizant, he's, he's cold, and, you know, there's a, there's a young woman who's brought in to kind of minister to him and warm him, and not, nothing happens, but, um, but during that time when he's kind of incapacitated, one of his sons from one of his wives decides to set up a throne. He takes and he makes himself the king. His name is Adonijah. And he throws a party for himself and he gathers a few of the choice men that were a part of David's kingdom. People that if they were on your side, the, 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 the city would look at it and go, man, you know, he's got Joab. He's, he's got the high priest. And so he gathers them to himself and he's having this party. Well, Bathsheba goes into him. Bathsheba is the one, goes into David. Bathsheba is the one, if you remember, earlier in David's life, he sinned and he took her when, he, when she wasn't his wife and her, her husband, Uriah, was away at war. And he laid with her and got her pregnant. He goes, uh-oh, I gotta cover it. And so he brings Uriah home and he says, hey, bro, go be with your wife, have fun. And, and, and Uriah's like, how can I do that when, when the people are out there dying? 
And so he does it. And so David gets him drunk and hopes that he'll do it, and he doesn't. And so he writes a letter to Joab on the front lines, the general, and he says, hey, take, take this man, Uriah, stick him at the heat of the battle, and right when he's there, pull back and let him die. And so he does. And once he dies, David figures, oh, man, we avoided that one. And he takes Bathsheba as his wife. And for one year, he holds on to this sin, thinking nobody sees it, but God saw it. And God revealed it to the prophet Nathan who knocks on his door and says, hey, David. And he gives them this riddle. There was this guy who had a lamb. It was a pet lamb. He loved it. And there was this other guy who had all kinds of sheep. And this guy who had all kinds of sheep had some friends that come in for dinner. And rather than killing one of his, he went and took the guy's pet lamb and killed him, it, and fed it to his guests. What do you think should be done to that? And David was infuriated. He should give back. And this, this is outrage. And Nathan said to him, but you're that man. You're him. And David wrote a psalm about it, about a year of his life that his bone waxed cold because he was living in this. Well, as a result, the child that would be born to David and Bathsheba would die, right? But he would give, God would give them another son. His name was Solomon. And Solomon, when he was born, a covenant was made to Bathsheba by David that he would be the king and he would reign when David was gone. And so now David's on his deathbed and some un, un, you know, sanctified king, another son has set himself up and Bathsheba walks into David and says, hey, you promised. And then Nathan the prophet comes in and says, you promised. And the truth is your other son is in a place that you never set him and he set himself there. And so David does something. He takes Solomon, the father takes the son and he sticks him on his donkey and he rides him through the city and he blows the trumpet and the people get excited and he says, here's your true king. Here's your king. Well, word gets back to the unlawful king, Adonijah, and it's told to him that Solomon, your brother, is riding on the father's mule. And all the people are saying, by the way, bears some striking resemblance to a story you know, right? And all the people are calling him king. And they're blowing the trumpet. And the party is in the streets. And when Adonijah hear this, hears this, fear sets in. He disassembles the party. Everybody leaves because they realize we're following the wrong king. And Adonijah does something. He goes into the tabernacle and we're told he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar is where they bound the sacrifice. The horns of the altar in all four corners is where the sacrifice was bound, where it was slaughtered and the blood was thrown onto the horns, onto the side. The horns of the altar were a bloody mess because the altar of, 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 of sacrifice was a bloody mess. And when a person did that, they were asking for mercy. And so word came back to Solomon that your brother has grabbed, holds of the, has grabbed holds of the horn of the altar and he's asking for mercy. And Solomon said, give it to him. As long as he lives an upright life, give it to him. Folks, Adonijah was an unlawful king that set himself up in a place of authority. Nobody put him there. He put him there. And his position established by him was an affront to the rightful king. 
And Adonijah needed to step down and relinquish control of what he built in order to be given mercy. And the rightful king needed to have his place. Folks, when Jesus said that in order for a person to come after him, they must deny himself, this is in part what he is talking about. He is saying that people like Adonijah think they rule their life. They've set themselves up as the king in their life. They do what they want to do. They live how they want to live, not realizing there is a rightful king on the throne that the Father has anointed, that has gone through all that is needed to be the heir. He's the heir by covenant. But people make their own throne in their own life, live how they want, choose to do what they want to do. And God's word is clear. There cannot be two kings. There cannot be two kings. There cannot be two masters. There cannot be two rulers. There cannot be two people making the decisions for a life that says it wants to honor God. There can't be. And so, for a person to deny themselves today, first, they must step down off the throne that they have made. God did not put you there. God did not give you authority over his son. They must step down and they must grab the horns of the altar and cry for mercy. They must step down and grab the cross where the, altar, where the, where the sacrifice was bound from all four points, where the blood was thrown up against the altar, if you will, and they must cry for mercy. And if they do, only at that altar will mercy be granted. That is the first step in denying yourself. If you don't do that, you don't have life. You are not the king. And one day you will encounter, you will encounter the true king. But it's more than that, you guys. It's more than just giving your life to Christ. When we talk about denying ourselves, you guys, you might have heard it said if you've walked in church long enough, I need to die to myself. Right? I need to die to myself. How many of you have ever said that? We've all said that, right? Or thought that or whatever. Well, what exactly does that mean, you guys? I, I need to die to myself. Like if you're, if you're not a Christian or you haven't hung out around church, that sounds weird, right? That's like somebody saying, hey, it's under the blood. And you're like, you've never been in church. You're like under what? It's Christian vernacular. What does it mean to die to yourself? Folks, in every one of you, there is an attraction to sin. An attraction. It's deep. It's different for every person. All of us are attracted to different sin, different types of sin. What tantalizes your flesh may not tantalize the person sitting next to you, but there is a deep attraction to it. Even as a Christian, even as somebody who loves God, Paul said this in Romans 7, 21. He said, I find then that there's a law that the one who wants to do good, me, sin is present, evil is present with him. Wherever I go, it's there. And he's attracted to it. They're like weeds. It's a time of year where I my, love my lawn. And I mow it well. And, and I keep my garden. And I plant stuff. But I'm always doing it. Like it never stops. You know, I, I, I'll spray the weeds in the front yard. And then I'll go to the garden in the back. And I'll pull them there. And then the lawn in the back. And then the ones in the front are back. It's like stinking Golden Gate Bridge. You paint it, you get to the other end, you start over, and you keep doing it your whole life. And the truth is the Christian life is constant attendance. 
to the things that you're attracted to, to the things that grow up. You uproot one, and you think, if, if you think, well, that, I'm glad, I'm glad I repented of that sin. I never have to worry about that again. How many of you guys have ever said that in your life and you worried about it again? Because it comes back, it grows back. So I hate to bum you out, but you're going to spend your Christian life tending to the weeds until the day you go home to be with him. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Shouts of Grace Radio with Pastor Steve Pearson. We hope that you've been encouraged to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. If you've been encouraged in your journey following and learning more about Jesus, we would love to hear from you. You can visit us online at shoutsofgraceradio.com. At shoutsofgraceradio.com, you can listen to all of our episodes, share them online with your friends, and find out more about Pastor Steve. Shouts of Grace is an outreach of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. Thank you again for joining us on today's show. And from all of us at Shouts of Grace, it is our prayer that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.